Kevin's sermon is a great way for us to start our text this morning as well. I, I listened and it was just a beautiful sermon about the glories of heaven and the hope that we have. And heaven is really a place where all those barriers of language and culture collapse, aren't they? And all of that will go away someday. There will be a day when you'll be able to talk to Christians from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you'll be able to understand them without Google Translate. And that's an awesome thing to think about. And really, the, the beauty of that really is centered in our love for one another. And that's really the topic, so the sort of the inroad into the topic that we want to talk about this morning, and this is from Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Romans 12, verse 13. So you can open there to Romans 12, and if you remember, we've talked about how this section of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, is sort of like a to-do list for every Christian. You can actually sum up the entire Christian life in just these few commands, which is why we're spending so much time on them. We're taking time to go through each one because it really is a summary of the Christian life in a really beautiful way. And, and in verse 13, he brings this summary to an end with these two last commands. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And if you take those two commands and you sort of lump them together, what's the central idea? The central idea here is generosity. It's a sense of generosity from the heart. And these two, uh, these two commands here focus on that idea of generosity. And so what I want to do is just unpack them separately and then look at them together. Uh, if we take them apart and then look at each one and then see how they're united together, I think it'll be helpful for us in terms of obeying these commands through the power of God. And so that's where we're going. And so let's look with look you can look with me at point one, generosity at church. Now, I was thinking through this sermon as I was flying back, and I was thinking, why does Paul put these at the end of the list? Isn't that odd? I mean, he's got all these things that are amazingly beautiful statements about love and brotherly love and all these things, and he comes to the end, and he's like, and don't forget to give to the saints. It's strange. And the other thing that makes it strange is if you just look up in verses 7 and 8, if you look up there with me, notice he doesn't actually put giving at the end there. In verse 7, he says, if service in his serving, if teaching in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. He doesn't put it in the, at the end there. So why does he do that here? I think the reason why Paul does this, I, I, we can't say with 100% certainty because Paul's not here and he doesn't tell us why he puts it here, but, but the reason why I think he puts it here is that sometimes these are the most difficult things to do. Now, the rest of them can be done internally, but this is difficult to do. You, maybe you've heard the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. And that's really what Paul, I think, is getting at here. He wants us to come to this conclusion where the love that we have for God and the love that we have for the saints finds an outlet, an outlet in our love that is practical. And so what I want to do is look at point A here, loving the brothers, loving the brothers, the command in the NAS in verse 13 is relatively simple. It's a good translation. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints. But the actual Greek word there is actually a little bit stronger. It's a stronger word that Paul's using. The word that's translated contribute is actually the same word that we, where we get the word fellowship in Greek. Fellowship. The, the word literally just means to share. It's the word koinonia in Greek. It means to share something. So when he says contributing to the needs of the saints, he doesn't just mean that you're giving to the needs of the saints. It means that you are sharing in the needs of the saints. When Paul calls us to share the needs of the saints, he isn't saying just exclusively economic. He's not just saying fix the problems outside of you. He's talking about a sharing in the need. What does that mean? It, it means that we have not only an economic but an emotional reality that we are sharing in the need. 
both of those ideas are actually contained in this word, contributing, in the word to share, in the word to fellowship. We are fellowshipping in the needs of the saints. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we are one body in Christ. We're one church. We're one body. And, and each one of us is connected to the other one. Paul's already made that point incredibly clear in Romans chapter 12. We're connected to each other. You are connected to me and I'm connected to you. And that connection happens intermingled with each one of us so that all together we feel for each other. And for that reason, we share the need and therefore we share the solution to the need, don't we? Paul says exactly this in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If one member suffers, everybody feels it. And we know this, don't we? Paul there is talking about the image of the body. I, not that long ago, a couple years ago, I was shutting the door on our front, uh, the front door on our house, and I pinched my thumb in the door. And it hurt so bad. <laughs> and I remember I like laid down on the couch. I ended up losing the nail. It all got swell, swollen up and it was just disgusting. If you want to see photos, I have them. But the, uh, the, the, it was incredibly painful. And it wasn't like I just thought like, oh, my thumb is smashed. It hurts right there, but it doesn't hurt anywhere else. I laid down on the couch. It hurt incredibly bad. It made me almost pass out. And I remember thinking, this is, every part of me is hurting. There's no part of me that isn't hurting. But it's just one little piece, just my thumb, right? Well, that's exactly the image that Paul is painting for us. If one of us is hurting, all of us is hurting together, aren't we? We should feel that. That unity that God has put into us in the church is expressed in the sharing of the needs among everyone. Now, what's the root of that? The root of that is love, isn't it? If we love each other, then we feel when another person is hurting. Love causes us to feel with the one who is hurting. Love motivates, it empowers us to care for those who are hurting, to share in the needs of those who are in pain. That's what love does. You know, you've probably heard this a hundred times. You've probably said it yourself if you're a parent. You know, when a child suffers, what do parents say? What do parents say when a child's suffering? What do they say? They say, I would happily trade spots with them. I would happily trade. I wish, it would, I wish I could suffer in their place. I don't want them to suffer. I would happily trade spots with them. Why? Because we love them. We would happily trade spots with our suffering children, wouldn't we? Of course we would. If, if I could take their suffering off of them and take it onto myself, I would, of course, do that. Why? Because I love them. We love our kids, and it makes us want to care for them. Parental love willingly shares in the suffering of the child, not just physically. They just, we don't just say, like, take a motor and be quiet, right? There's the emotional realities that are connected with that child hurting, and we care for them. And that's true of the love that exists in the church. The love between brothers and sisters in the church should cause us to share in the needs that they have. So this is what Paul is commanding us to do, to share in the needs of the saints, to care for one another, to love one another as a body in such a way that we, that we meet those needs, not just physically, but emotionally, because our hearts are tied together. Now again, I, like I've said in almost every one of these sermons, you guys do so well at this. This is not like in, in any way to be a scolding message. I watch this happen constantly, and it's a huge and a beautiful blessing for me as a pastor to watch those things take place. But we can always excel still more, right? And so what would keep us from fulfilling this command? What would keep us from doing this as well as we could? And this is point B, false loves. 
false loves. If love is the motive that causes us to care for and share in the needs of the saints, what would keep us from it? Well, a false love would keep us from doing that, right? If I love something else, then it will cause me to turn away from the needs that I see. For example, if my heart is clinging to possessions, I will struggle to meet the needs that I might see in the body. And of course that's true, right? We can feel that. If you've, been sh- if you've been saving and planning and craving to buy a new car, and then you hear that some guy's car broke down, it's going to be very difficult for you to say, well, I won't have a new car. Why don't you get a new car? Here's the money for the new car. You buy yourself a new car. That's hard. <laughs> it's hard for us to have our hands open when we are loving something else. And that love for money can lead to all sorts of sinful responses on our part, can't it? If we're loving what we have, loving money, loving possessions, it can produce a host of sinful responses. For example, I might be quick to define needs in a very narrow way, right? I might take needs and pare them down here. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. And I might say, well, that's true, but biblically, needs are only shelter and food. And so, that person should be content with that, right? I mean, the Bible never says you should own a car, And so, yeah, they're living in a tent, and yes, they're eating only dry bread, but they have shelter and food. Needs are met. I'm good. I don't need to meet that need. But what's interesting is Paul doesn't define needs here at all, does he? He just says, contribute, share in the needs of the saints. And so there might be needs that might not be a a place where we can look in the Bible and say there's a verse that says that's the specific need that that person has, but because our hearts feel for that person, we care for them, and so we provide those needs. Love makes us open-handed to do that, and God is calling us to meet that need. And that's what John says in 1 John 3, 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... He's just talking about life and the things that life has. And you see your brother in need. He says, yet he closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? As someone who sees someone else who's in need and he says, no, I'm keeping mine, right? I get all I can and I can all I get and I sit on the lid and no one else touches this. And then there's a need over here. Sure, there's a need, but they have food and shelter. That heart, he says, that's not the love of God. That's not the love of God. And so a love for money can cause me to close my heart against my brother. But if I'm loving God more than money and possessions, when I hear about the need, what happens? I'm happy to meet it, right? Because I have everything that I need in Christ, and so I don't need anything, and so I'm happy to give what I can. Stephen read it for us this morning, 2 Corinthians 8. It says that the Macedonians gave beyond their ability. They were poor, and they were giving away what they couldn't give, and Paul even tells them, maybe you should wait. And they say, no, this is our privilege to get to do this. Why? Well, the text tells us it's because of the grace that was given to them from God. God gave them grace. They understood the love of God in their hearts and it opened their hands and their wallets to care for the needy. And so a love of money can keep me from meeting the needs of the saints. The second false love that might hinder my obedience to this command is a love for my righteousness. You know, I might think of myself as a careful and frugal person, You know, I've saved, I've worked hard, all my needs are met. Then I can think, you know, that guy over there, he's not as frugal as I am. He's not as careful with his money. You remember in 2004 when you overspent on that new pair of shoes? I remember it. Exactly. And now he's reaping the just rewards of that terrible decision. What is that? 
Now, that's a silly example, but what is that? That's just self-righteousness, right? That's my self-righteous heart condemning somebody else and then evaluating their needs based on that condemning spirit. But our hearts can do this, can't they? It's so easy for us to get judgmental about these things and turn and look at other people and evaluate them. But Paul doesn't put any of that there, does he? What is his language? He says, contributing to the needs of the saints, sharing in the needs of the what? The saints. What are they? They're holy people. They are loved by God. They are the people of God. And therefore, if God loves them and we love them, then the specifics of that thing are not as important. Our hearts should go out to one another, even if we see other people making mistakes. Our hearts should be quick to say, how can I help in this situation? That's what love does. It overcomes that self-righteous spirit that can keep us from being truly generous. And obviously, there's lots that could be said here. There's so many other things that can happen in our hearts, but those are two that can keep us from it. But Paul has called us to do this, and so we must. We must share in the needs of one another. But there's a second command here, and this is point two on your outline, generosity at home, generosity at home. Paul moves from the church here to our houses, right? And this is really amazing. I we, I think in America, we like the idea of independence, don't we? But Paul, he opens your front door and walks into your living room and says, let me tell you how to arrange your furniture. Uh, that's amazing that he does this. He deals with the most private places of our lives and tells us how we ought to be using them. And what he says here is practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. Again, this is, this is an important issue to, biblically. And this is Point A on your outline, loving strangers. The word for hospitality literally just means that. It means a love for strangers, someone that you don't know. You love them. Now, we teach our kids stranger danger, right? We teach our kids that with wisdom. We're not, we're not saying that that's what Paul is saying here. Paul isn't telling the Roman Christians that they should just accept in any crazy, rabid Roman soldier into their house who's bent on killing them. That's not what he's saying. But the concept of hospitality has been narrowed in our culture and in our churches. It's kind of been narrowed down into just having people over for dinner. And that's important, and that's a good thing. But the concept is much broader than that. In the ancient world, there were no such thing as inns, right? There weren't hotels. You couldn't couldn't call ahead and book a hotel room when you're going to another town. And so what did you do? Well, there were these itinerant missionaries, these itinerant preachers, they were going from town to town preaching, and what had to happen is that the people of the church had to come around them and provide a place for them to live. If there was a hotel in the town, there were often houses of ill repute, as we might say, and so there was nowhere for them to stay, and if that church didn't take them in, they ended up just living in the, the courtyard, I mean the large center of the town. And so when a traveling preacher came to town, they needed a place, and so the church would open their homes to allow that. So what Paul is getting at here is a willingness to open the house for someone to come in. There's no specifics on it. He doesn't say, this is what you should do, and this is how much you should have, and this is, he should have his own room, and any of those things, because he knows that culture changes, but it's a heart that's willing to open our homes for those who are outside who need help. That's what Paul is getting at. And when you hear this, you might think, well, I'd be willing to have a traveling preacher. You know, when Gus, if Gus shows up, I'd be happy to have him stay at our house. That'd be great. Gus, Gus is a great guy. He can come and stay at my house. That's no problem. But it's a little more complex than that in the ancient world, isn't it? And there's a lot of reasons why. Number one, you don't know this guy. You've probably never met him in your entire life. He just shows up. So it's somewhat awkward that a stranger is suddenly living in your home. The homes were much smaller then, and so they're living with you familially in your home, all right there in your presence. Second, there's no email or phones. 
He can't tell you when he's coming. So he just shows up. He just shows up without any notice whatsoever. Suddenly there's another table that you, another person at the table that you need to feed, and there's a place that you need to have for him to sleep. He's going to disrupt your life and your schedule pretty substantially when he arrives at your door. And third, he's coming in from a long trip, either by foot or on an animal. He will not smell good, right? This is not like the nice, freshly showered missionary that comes and stays and has already booked that several months in advance with one of our families. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about some guy who smells like a horse showing up at random at your door that you've never met before. And what's Paul's answer to that? Let him in. Get him a bed. Shower him. Feed him and let him stay. That's Paul's answer to that. And Paul says we should practice that. It's pretty uncomfortable. And that's why this command is so tied to love in the New Testament. It's so connected to love. It's fascinating, actually. Turn over at Hebrews chapter 13. I want to show you this. Hebrews chapter 13. This has to come out of a heart of love. That's the only way anyone would ever do this. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. This chapter is just a, a, a series of commands that flow out of what the author of Hebrews has says and said in the book. And the first command he gives is in verse 1. He says, let love of the brethren continue. Keep, keep loving each other. And in verse 2, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Exactly the same phrasing. Do this, right? Show hospitality to strangers. And then we have one of the most <laughs> enigmatic phrases, right? For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. The author of Hebrews says, look, if you love the brothers, then just open your home to them. You might not know them, and they might not smell good, and they might be someone who's interrupting your schedule, but open your home to them and let them in. Why? Because you love them. They're your brother. They're your sister in Christ, and so let them in. Love opens our doors to people who have needs, and we're willing to do that. Just so, so you're aware, the author here isn't saying be hospitable because you might have an angel show up. <laughs> That's not the point of that text. More likely the other way around. <laughs> you're fairly confident that he's not angelic. No, what, Paul, what the author here is talking about is Genesis, the book of Genesis. You remember when Abraham entertained the angels when they came before they went and visited Lot in Sodom. In, in, uh, Sodom. And what the author here is saying is that it's better to assume that everyone is an angel rather than to disrespect your brother or sister in Christ. That's a better way to think about it. Just be respectful to everyone and let love cover whatever it is that might be a disruption to your life. It's better to do that than to disrespect your brother or sister in Christ. So love produces an open door on our house. But what might keep us from this? What might hinder, and hinder this? This is point B here on your outline. There's a lot of things, but I think in the end, the thing that hinders us from hospitality is just self-love. Just self-love. The summary statement of this can be found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Peter says, show hospitality without complaint, without complaint. And that word in Greek is actually an onomatopoeia, right? It's a word that's spelled so that it sounds like what it is. You know, we have these in English too, like splash, right? It sounds like what's happening. And this word is onomatopoetic. It's the word gonguzmos. <laughs> You hear that word, what does it sound like? Gonguzmos, well, gonguzmos. That's what he's doing. You're grumbling, right? That's the sound that we make when we're grumbling. We don't usually do it loudly, right? But we say things like, he smells like a horse, you know? <laughs> That's literally what's being said in that word, grumbling and complaining in our hearts. And Peter says, listen, 
Don't open your home and then grumble. Don't open your home and grumble. Don't complain. Well, what could possibly make us complain? Well, hospitality is tough, isn't it? We could complain and be unhappy hosts if we love our schedule more than we love the brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be unhappy hosts because there's this interruption in our normal daily life. Having someone in your house can make a mess of your plans, can't it? You got all sorts of plans and suddenly they're in your house and now you can't have those plans anymore because you have to be busy making breakfast or doing something else. And if we're unwilling to be flexible with those things, we will not be happy to, ho- to, to be hospitable to others. Or a love for money could keep us from being happy hosts, couldn't it? People show up and they eat, sometimes a lot. <laughs> and if our hearts are tied to money and we're watching our monthly food budget getting drained much faster than we had expected, it can be a painful experience. We can start to grumble, you know? It's possible. Or perhaps a love of our things can cause us to not love the brothers. Sometimes guests ruin things that we love. Their kids break something. They damage a family heirloom that's irreplaceable. They, they break something that can't be quickly purchased, right? Their kids come in and they're covered with dirt and germs. Those things can cause us to grumble, can't they? Because they're a hassle. And so we can complain in our hearts. Peter says, listen, don't complain, don't grumble. Love, show hospitality, open your doors. And in fact, Paul, fascinatingly, in in Romans 12, 13, he uses an incredibly strong word for practice here. See how it's translated? He says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That word for practice there is actually the word pursue in Greek. It's the word that's actually used for persecution. What he's literally saying is, go after these people and get them in your house, right? There's like a desire to bring them in and disrupt your schedule and break your things and eat your food budget. That you're out saying, I want them to come in. I want them to be there. There's an aggressive pursuit of this type of loving service. And so what Paul here is talking about is genuine generosity, a joyful willingness to share in the needs of one another and to open our homes and to pursue those who can come in and we can care for. So where do we get the power to do that? That's the question. How do we show generosity at a church and how do we show generosity at home? I know you know the answer. The answer is from God, right? God gives us the power to do this, but how? We want to know how practically. What do you do in your heart on that day when someone knocks at your door and says, can I stay here? So this is point three on your outline, generosity from heaven. And we saw generosity in the church. It's from a love for the brothers, right? And generosity in home is from a love for strangers. And both of those are a fruit. They're not a root. You can't make yourself do this. You can't manufacture it. The root of our generosity is actually God's generosity. We are generous because God is generous to us. This is point A on your outline, loving sinners. God didn't just love the brothers, right? He didn't just love strangers. Who did God love? God loved his enemies. Look back in Romans chapter 5 with me. Kevin actually went here last week, and in many ways, Romans 5 is the connecting point for this whole section. Look at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Paul says this, he says, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for who? The decent. No, for the ungodly. We're ungodly people. 
And in verse 7, he says, for one would hardly die for a righteous man. Show me a righteous person. Eh, maybe I'd be willing to die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for his enemies. He died for the wicked. He willingly went to the cross for you when you hated him. Why? Why? Because he loves you. And that love caused him to be generous. Stephen, he read it for us this morning, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. What's the generosity of Christ? It's not money. He's not talking about wealth there. He's talking about spiritual wealth. The generosity of Christ is that he took his righteousness and granted it to us. And he took our sin upon himself. He became poor so that we might be made spiritually rich in him. Jesus didn't love himself. He didn't love his life. He didn't grumble about his schedule. (laughs) He came to die for our sins. He was infinitely rich in the glories of heaven and he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing in order to bring you into the family of God. That's what Christ has done. The infinite generosity of God at the cross revealed his heart of love for sinners like us. He told his disciples that, right? John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. This is the heart of God for us. He is generous toward us, though we are sinners. And that's what causes us to be generous, but we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful. What's the danger here? I could finish this sermon and say to you, God was generous to you, now you be generous to others. And that's wrong. Why is that wrong? It's wrong because you'll leave here and think to yourself, well, I've gotten this much from God, I need to pay it back. I'm paying God back for what he's given me. Yeah, he was generous to me, I've received from him, and now I'm going to give back to him, and now we're going to be on equal footing, right? God was generous, I'm generous, things are good. But that's the worst thing you could ever think. Why is that the worst thing you could ever think? Because God doesn't need your generosity. He doesn't need your house. He doesn't need my house. He doesn't need our money. God owns everything, and every house on the planet is his. He doesn't need us. So if we say, okay, you gave to me, I'm going to give back to you, we're even. That's evil. God doesn't want exchange. Ultimately, that'll result in slavish obedience from us, won't it? It'll just make us slaves. Well, I have to do this. I don't want to do this, but I have to because, after all, God was generous to me, so what can I do? That's evil. That's not obedience. That's unrighteousness. So what do we do instead? And this is point B, renew our minds. This is so crucial. (laughs) God does not call you to generosity as payback. He doesn't call you to generosity as payback. Listen, if you have an opportunity this week to show generosity, to open your home to a stranger, to meet the needs of a brother or sister in Christ, and you don't do it, you don't do it. You choose to love money, or you choose to love your schedule, or you choose to love your things more than you're loving Christ, and more than you're loving that brother or sister. Listen, God will not be angry at you. Think about that. God is not going to be angry at you. He won't frown in heaven and say, there's John again, F. He doesn't do that. God is not like that. He's not angry, right? Why? Because my selfishness at that moment is already paid by Christ. 
It's not me giving back to God. God has already given me everything. The righteousness that I could never earn, he's granted to me freely. Now, your selfishness doesn't please him. It doesn't please him, but he's pleased with you because of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Your sins are forgiven. So what does that do? Well, it means he's maintaining your status as his beloved child. You're already forgiven, right? He's keeping you there even when you fail to reflect his fatherly love on others, when you're not doing the things that you should be doing. So how does that change us? Think about this for a minute. Go back to Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. How does this change us? This whole section starts here. Look what he tells us. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. It is the mercies of God that cause us to open our hands. It is the mercies of God that cause us to open our doors. It's not because we're paying God back because he's been so generous to us. It is because, not as payback, but because of what we've already received. We don't give it back to God. We simply say, I have everything that I need. I'm happy to give everything away. Everything I need is given to me in the mercies of God. I have Christ, and if I have him, I have everything that I need, and all the things that my heart tends to hold on to are nothing in comparison to him. When we see the mercies of God, our minds are reminded about how much he joyfully and happily loves us, and that causes us to give everything that we have to whatever the need is that's presented to us. So what do we do? We have to remember the mercies of God upon us. When we do that, what do we do? We renew our minds. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Look what he says. He says, do not be conformed to this world. What would the world tell you? The world would tell you what? Your schedule is more important than this person. You've got to get here and here and here by five or you won't get home on time. The world will tell you that money is more important. You need to save. How would you ever retire right? The world will tell you that your house is more important. You can't replace that thing, right? They're going to break it and you can't replace it. The world will tell you those things. But Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Remind yourself about the mercies of God and what he's done for you. You don't need the schedule to always fit. You don't need all the money that you think you do. You don't need the house in the specific ways that you do. And what does that do? When we are reminded of those things, it changes us so that we Open our hands and open our doors. We have to remember again the glories of God's merciful love in sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. We have to remind ourselves again that Jesus paid for our sins and that he's alive in us. We need to dwell on those things and let our hearts be transformed by those truths. What happens is that God then becomes more important than the other things, doesn't he? God is more important than those things we'll happily give them up. And that's why Paul tells us to take communion. That's why Paul tells us to take communion. Why do we take communion? To remind ourselves of this. To have our minds renewed with the truth of the gospel. To remember the Lord's death, he says, until he comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. We have to be reminded of those things. If we're, if we're not, then our minds will quickly close and we will be conformed to the world. So what we want to do today is take communion. Why? 
Not, not because there's anything special in the bread, there's nothing special in the grape juice, none of it has anything special to do for us, except that it reminds us of the spiritual realities of what we've received in Christ. It reminds us of the mercies of God. God wants you to know how profoundly you've been loved by him. He wants you to know and to meditate on that love by thinking of the death of his son in your place. He wants you to consider that. He wants you to remember a time when you were selfish and unkind and you didn't open your hand and you didn't open your door when you could have and you did it for false motives. And he wants you to remember that Jesus died for that sin. Why? Why? So that we know how much he loves us. So that our hearts are satisfied in him and in him alone. And what he knows is that when our hearts are satisfied in him, our hands are open, aren't they? Our doors open wide because it's easy once we know the love of Christ. And that's why communion's only for believers. If you're here and you're not saved, don't take communion. That would be unhelpful for you, right? If you know you're not a true Christian, if you've never come to Christ and said, look, I'm the sinner, I need a Savior. If you've never done that, don't take communion. Come to Christ this morning. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And so if you're here and you're not saved and you're a sinner, get saved. Jesus Christ came into the world to save you. And if you're here and you are a Christian, what should you do? <laughs> you should remind yourself again of the love of Christ for you. Remember his death in your place. Remember his death for your selfishness. Remember his death for all the times when you chose the unrighteous thing. Remember that he died to take the hell that you rightfully deserve for the sins that you've committed and that it's paid in full. And receive that kindness again. Maybe you've loved the world more than you've loved Christ. Perhaps you've found yourself grumbling. Maybe you haven't loved the brothers and sisters the way you ought to have. If that's true of you, just confess those things to God. Tell him, Lord, this is me. I'm the one who's doing this. Please forgive me. And what's his answer? Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Trust again the cleansing blood of Christ. Now, obviously, as parents, keep a watch over your kids. If your kids aren't believers, don't let them take communion, right? Help them to understand what it is, and then they can. So what we want to do is just invite the men down and what we're going to do is just give you a few moments to pray and to think and to confess. And then I'll pray, and then we'll sing together with the band. And the men will be up front, so come down. If you're a believer in Christ, you know Christ as your Savior, come forward, take the elements. We'll take, we'll take them together, so keep them with you. and Go back to your seat, and then I'll stand up, and we'll take them all together. All right? We'll just give you a moment here to pray, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. Lord, we thank you for his love for us. Lord, we know our sins, our selfishness. Lord, you know our hearts better than we do even. Lord, you know where we've failed, where we've chosen to love ourselves and not you. Lord, you know that's in each of us. Lord, it's easy for us to love our schedules. It's easy for us to love the world. It's so easy for us to love ourselves and to not love you. Lord, to be selfish Lord, to close our hands and to close our doors against the needs of those around us. But Lord, we thank you for Christ. 
Lord, we thank you that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through him might be made rich. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you've given us in him. Lord, that our needs have all been met by Christ. Lord, that if we have him, we have everything we could possibly need or want. Lord, thank you for communion and the reminder that this is, that Jesus died for those sins of selfishness, that Jesus paid the price for our failings. Lord, that nothing can ever separate us from that love. Lord, we thank you for your mercies to us in him. Lord, we pray, I pray that you would help us this morning. Lord, remind us of not only our brokenness, but remind us of his perfect righteousness. Lord, remind us that it is ours freely. Lord, help us to know the great generosity of our Savior. Lord, not so that we can be forced to obey it, but Lord, so that we can freely and joyfully open our hands knowing we have everything that we could ever need in him. Lord, thank you for Christ. And Lord, as we do this, we pray that you would glorify him in our hearts or that we would love him more because of his death in our place. Lord, we love you. We thank you for him. In his precious name we pray, amen.